Up next, Biz 503, the Portland-centric podcast for startups and small businesses. We believe it, we live it, and there's something about Brand Portland that has taken a meteoric rise in our world. Welcome to Biz 503, the Portland startup and small business podcast from Portland Radio Project. I'm Linda Weston, principal at the consulting firm Reporto. And I'm Mike Rogaway, business writer for The Oregonian. Portland has long been considered a mecca for alternative transportation with sprawling public transportation system and years of renown as a top bicycling commuting city. However, worsening traffic and an increase in road fatalities are coming head to head with Portland's transportation ideals and image. In December of 2016, the city launched an initiative to eliminate traffic fatalities in Portland. That plan, called Vision Zero, focuses on street design, education, and enforcement to make it safer to get around in Portland. Today on Biz 503, we're looking at the intersection where those transportation goals, partnerships, and small businesses come together. Joining us for that conversation today are three transportation experts. We have John Brady, he's the Communications Director for the Portland Bureau of Transportation. Thank you. Good to be here. Elliot Noose covers growth for the Oregonian. Hi, thanks for having me. And we have Roman Bonilla. He's the Communications Director for the Street Trust, an alternative transportation advocacy organization. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So, John, as part of Vision Zero, the city has identified a high-crash network on Portland streets. Could you describe a bit about what that means, what the high-crash network is, and the philosophy behind Vision Zero? Sure. So Vision Zero, as you mentioned in the opening, is our uh, main traffic safety initiative. And we adopted that, the Vision Zero plan in 2016. And it sets a very ambitious goal of eliminating fatal crashes and serious injury crashes on Portland streets by 2025. And as part of that, we have identified what we call the high crash network. And these are the 30 streets that have the most fatal crashes and serious injuries. And the reason we have identified those is if we can move the needle in terms of safety on those streets, then we can move the needle um, overall in making streets safer. And I think what's important to point out is that those 30 streets only make up 8% of the of our street network, but have over 50% of the fatals and serious crashes. So if we can do something there, then we can really do something citywide. Could you clarify me when you talk about fatal crashes, are you talking vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to bicycle and pedestrian, all of those? That's a great question. No, it's all fatal crashes. Okay. So uh, vehicle to vehicle involving pedestrians, involving people who are, um, people are biking, so do fewer car trips and alternative forms of transportation like car sharing or bicycling figure into Vision Zero's plan? Yes, in the sense that what we have found is that when you can make streets safer for and more inviting for pedestrians and people who are biking, that makes the street safer for all users. And so, you know, when we go and improve a street, we will improve the crossings, we'll improve the bike lanes. And of course, if we can reduce the number of car trips, reduce the traffic volumes on some of these busy streets, then that can also have a safety impact. Speaking of traffic volumes, Elliot, you wrote recently in The Oregonian that traffic is getting worse in the city, and I think we all experienced that. And the, the underlying reason has a lot to do with the city's improving economic fortunes. Can you describe the relationship there? 
Yeah, well, it's pretty straightforward um, in that, you know, when you have uh, an economy on the rise, you have more people working, and that means uh, more people are commuting uh, one way or another. Um, you have not only people who were previously unemployed now going to work, but you have people moving here uh, for jobs that have been newly created. Um, meanwhile, uh, we're in a period where uh, gas is cheap and cars are cheap. Uh, so you have a lot of people who are choosing to commute alone in a car, and, and they're doing so on more or less the same roads as they were uh, 10, 20 years ago. In the recovery from the recession, as the economy has improved, transit ridership has been more or less flat. Telecommuting hasn't really taken off in a way that people thought it would, and so there are more people driving. And uh, when you have more money uh, sort of floating around in the economy, that means people are buying more things, and that means uh, not only are they making trips in some cases to do that, but there are more trucks and delivering goods. And the same time, and this is a question for both Elliot and John, I believe traffic fatalities were up last year. Is that right? That's right. So we had 45 traffic fatalities. That was um, increase over the year previous. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, the higher the, again, the more cars on the road, the greater the chances that there are going to be crashes. Do either of you know, has there been any work done to determine to what degree the rise in fatalities corresponds to the rise in traffic volumes if they're moving in tandem or if their fatalities are rising more rapidly or less rapidly than road miles? That's a good question. I don't, I'm not aware of any research on that. I'm sure there is. What we know is when we look at the factors that contribute to crashes, we identify excessive speed, uh, driver distraction, and driver impairment. You know, if they're you know if they're drinking while driving, um, things like that. So those are the three factors that we really look at. That's one of the reasons why, as part of our Vision Zero initiative, we really have focused on trying to um, lower speeds, um, improve the street design, and then also take initiatives to encourage people not to drive distracted and certainly not to drive impaired. Roman, I think all of us who ride regularly and ride for commuting have a story of an unfortunate encounter with a motorized vehicle. Some of us have more than one, and most of us had no people who've had very serious incidents. Do people perceive biking as more dangerous than driving a car? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people do, but it's uh, the key word here is perceive. Mm -hmm. uh, bicycling by itself is, a, is not a particularly dangerous activity for most people. Um, and uh, the idea is that people feel that riding a bike is more dangerous than driving uh, because cars are big and sturdy. They, they have airbags and seatbelts that give you this impression of safety, despite the fact that cars uh, are among the most dangerous vehicles to travel in. Here's the thing. When you see it on its own, when you ride a bike, it's a lot safer than driving a car, mainly because it involves much slower speeds. Mm. Uh, and by virtue of having lower speeds, uh, you have a lot more time to respond to uh, potential hazards on the road. But when you look at bicycling in a city context, uh, it's not just about the mode of transportation you've chosen, but also the people around you. And so when you're sharing the road with a car and truck drivers who are driving much faster than you, you're much less likely to avoid making mistakes. And so um, if they fail to notice you, they run the risk of crashing into you. And uh, without a big metal box to protect you, uh, yeah, that can be tragic. So yes, bicycling can be perceived as very dangerous uh, compared to cars. But the reality is, is more that uh, it has to do with our policies and how we accommodate bicyclists. Got it. And other than that fear, the, the concern of, a, of an unfortunate encounter with a motorized vehicle, what other sorts of things inhibit people 
wanting to bike? Is it our weather? Is it facilities at work? Is it unfamiliarity with routes? I think a lot of these are factors, but the uh, the, the body of research uh, on this question shows pretty consistently that the biggest factor uh, is this perception of danger. Uh, and so while all the weather and so on can help, really it's about fixing this perception of danger because even people with a real desire to bicycle or to ride their bicycle more often uh, are, are held back by this perception of danger. So the best way is to uh, reduce the danger itself, uh, making it actually safer, and I think the perception will go from there. Uh, and that means, you know, uh, bike facilities like bike lanes, uh, bike boxes, uh, bike signals, making the roads less deadly for drivers and bicyclists and everybody else. Excellent. In terms of perception, and I guess this is a question for all three of you, are there certain things that have been shown to have the most impact on people's willingness to do it? Is it bike lanes that are particularly inviting? Is it the bike boxes? What do people see that they say, okay, that's something that's going to motivate me to, to go out and ride and commute that way? Um, protected bike lanes. So those are, I think, the greater the buffer between the bicyclists and the vehicle traffic. I mean, in the best case, it's a physical separation. And, you know, there are other ways of doing it with striping and things like that. But that's one of the, the main things. It's one of the reasons why we have put in a new standard to make uh, protected bike lanes the default standard for future bike lane design in the city, because we found that if we can, you know, the more that we can do that, the the greater we can uh, increase cycling. Excellent. Well, coming next, we'll talk about the compromises involved in getting improvement projects off the ground after a short break. Support for Biz503 comes from Premium Websites, offering website and social media marketing to startups and small businesses. For more, go to premiumwebsites.net. Welcome back to Biz 503. We're talking today about alternative transportation in Portland, and in this segment, some of the ground-level compromises that make big infrastructure projects work. Joining us today are John Brady, Communications Director at the Portland Bureau of Transportation, Elliot News, Reporter at The Oregonian, and Roman Bonilla, Communications Director at The Street Trust. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So I have a quick question about uh, pedestrian fatalities and how that relates to Vision Zero. It seems like over the last year or so, particularly on some of the really busy streets in the southeast sector of the city, it just seems like there's been a dramatic increase in pedestrian fatalities. Is that really accurate? And if so, how large an increase has it been? Right. Pedestrians are some of our most vulnerable Road, they are the most vulnerable road users. And given the, if you look at sort of the number of pedestrians and then the number of fatalities, the ratio is the highest among um, pedestrians. And we have had some incidents in the last couple of years on outer division and things like that of some really tragic crashes and fatalities involving pedestrians. So yes, they are the most vulnerable road users. John, can we ask you a little bit about the, the 20s bikeway project? In, in my neighborhood in southeast Portland, we've always had really good access going east to west, but going north to south has been a little bit of a bear. Uh, but I was riding up to the Lloyd District a couple months ago and was really struck at how easy it was to get from my house up there. And it used to be a, a real jungle to find my way. 
So that's, I guess, the 20s bike project in action. Can you tell me what the genesis was for that and how it played out? Well, first of all, it's great to hear that you're using it and that you're enjoying using it. Yes. So um, as you mentioned, we have a very robust east-west bicycle infrastructure, bicycle network. We don't have as good of a north-south bicycle network, and our neighborhood greenways are part of our effort to make those north-south connections. And the neighborhood greenways are usually their neighborhood streets that are um, close to major busy streets. So because we want to kind of mirror that network and we design them or we add uh, treatments to uh, lower the speeds on those streets, lower the traffic volumes and thus make them more inviting for walkers and bikers. And what we like to say is we like to, we want to build a bikeway, a bike network that uh, invites riders from 8 to 80. Uh, you know, I think as both Elliot and um, Roman pointed out, when people have that, when they feel safe, they will ride more. And neighborhood greenways are really part of that uh, effort to both make biking safer and to make it more inviting for, for people. So do the summertime uh, bikeways programs through the various neighborhoods impact people's desire and sort of expose them to alternative routes? Has that been successful in that way? That's the idea. You know, if you look at the programs like Sunday Parkways in other cities, they tend to be on the major thoroughfares in those other cities. In Portland, we do it slightly differently. We actually have them on these neighborhood greenways, on neighborhood streets, because what we want to demonstrate to people on a Sunday is like that it's actually easy and safe to ride. And the idea is hopefully that will spur them to ride every day to make, as we like to say, to make every day a Sunday parkway. I have a question that either John or, or Elliot may have some insight on. I also drive a fair bit and Google Maps likes to route me through these greenways because it knows that they're a great way to, to get around. And I imagine when I'm on a bike, many of the people I'm riding alongside who are in cars found their way onto a greenway because their phone told them to go there. Is there anything that can be done to route us, you know, off those greenways when we're driving, Elliot? That is one thing that um, a lot of cyclists were interested in seeing on the 20s bikeway is diverters, you know, something that blocks that through traffic that then shunts drivers over to a main road, it makes it a little less convenient to use that route. And over time, you know, that affects where Google sends people. So at least when this uh, launched, there weren't a lot of diverters. And uh, I know that some of the folks who had been following that project would have liked to see more. Yeah, that's a good point. And so we look at all of these, we evaluate uh, these greenway projects, and um, we have a neighborhood greenway policy that sets maximum traffic volumes for these neighborhood greenways. And if we find out that those volumes are being exceeded, then we will think about other efforts to lower those traffic volumes. And Elliot's right, diverters are one of the ways to do that. Speed bumps can also help in that respect. And, you know, just lowering the speed in general, the speed on neighborhood greenways is 20 miles an hour. And we've done that in places, the, the Clinton Greenway, for example, we added diverters because of exactly that problem of, of cut through traffic. Do any of you know, does Google respond if a city or a jurisdiction calls and says, hey, you know, your algorithms are putting people in difficult spots? Do they respond to that? John, have you ever tried to call? We have worked with them. Uh, you know, we have conveyed that information to them. I think they're aware of it, but it's also, you know, the algorithm is what the algorithm is. Yeah, I hear you. So um, I am curious, Elliot, as to when you were researching that lengthy um, article you did, 
was any of the research uh, looking at the huge influx of new residents to Portland? We keep hearing a thousand people a month moving to the Portland metro area. Do you uncover anything about whether most of them are looking to be bike commuters or auto commuters? You know, when you look at the numbers, you don't see a big shift in our, you know, what's called mode share, the the way people are getting to work. Like I said, transit has been flat. Uh, so there's been some volatility among people riding bikes uh, to and from work. It jumped a couple of years ago, then it fell last year. And a lot of those changes are within the margin of error. So it's really hard to say what's actually happening. Thank you. Roman, I'm curious, as people are designing greenways, how do they balance competing ish interests? How do they make sure that the interests of the people who are getting from place to place on a bike are not bumping up against neighbors who may fear traffic being routed off the greenway and onto their street? I mean, that's a, that's a question with just about any any policy about public spaces, right? How, how are stakeholders impacted? I'd say competing interests is an interesting way to phrase it. I think there are some people who aren't yet on board uh, with uh, making our, our transportation system more accessible for everybody. And those reasons at our side are usually kind of short-sighted, if I can say so. Uh, they're not looking at the big picture. And uh, if you look at the short-term impact, uh, yeah, you might find some things that affect your neighborhood negatively. But if you look at the big picture long-term, uh, the benefits are overwhelming. Uh, so, so that's one, uh, one of the uh, competing interests. But then even within the movement, uh, once people are on board, you know, there's lots of different reasons people choose active transportation. And sometimes the outcome people are looking for have a little bit of nuance. For example, a lot of people choose to ride their bikes uh, or walk or ride the bus uh, because they believe in that transportation choice, be it for environmental reasons, uh, because they like living an active, healthy lifestyle. But other people don't really have that much of a choice. Some people just straight up cannot afford uh, payments associated with car ownership. Uh, people with disabilities and mobility issues, many of them driving is not an option. And so uh, and so here there's some nuance even within the movement where essentially uh, we, we need to bring everybody on the same page and make sure we, we find a policy that works. Is there a magic bullet to bring people together to see that what they're ultimately after is often something they have in common? Uh, but we each have our parochial interests, whether we're a bike rider or a neighborhood resident who's accustomed to taking a certain route in a car around the neighborhood. I'm not sure if we have a silver bullet yet. I think we're working on making one happen. Uh, here's the, the key, I think, in, in this question is to create a more multimodal, holistic approach uh, to this kind of work. Uh, that's why the Street Trust recently, uh, we expanded our mission uh, to include uh, not only bicycling, but also pedestrian and uh, transit users in our advocacy. And, uh, you know, we started in the 90s as a very bicycle-centric uh, group. This meant that a lot of perspectives were, were being left out of the conversation, um, be it uh, pedestrians, transit users, uh, the elderly, people with mobility issues. So last year we expanded our mission to embrace these perspectives because um, we need to be all on board and, you know, it's better to fight together for what we have in common and to baker over the, the tiny nuances. That's very interesting. I was not aware that broader mission was ongoing. Uh, we're going to take another break, but coming next, we're going to talk about partnerships and the role they play in Portland's transportation future after this short break. 
Support for Biz 503 comes from Premium Websites, offering website and social media marketing to startups and small businesses. For more, go to premiumwebsites.net. Welcome back to Biz 503. We're here with John Brady from the Portland Bureau of Transportation, Elliot News from the Oregonian, and Roman Bonilla from the Street Trust. Thanks to everybody for coming back with us. So, John, as promoting alternative transportation goes, what are the foundations of some of the PBOT's successful partnerships, especially with smaller businesses? Right. So we have a variety of ways in which we work with uh, smaller businesses on this. I think one is, um, you know, awareness. So I think businesses can encourage their employees to uh, take alternatives to the single occupancy vehicle. Um, in some of our parking districts, we have initiatives that uh, to encourage folks again to take alternatives. So we just instituted, for example, the transportation wallet in the Northwest Parking District. And this bundles passes, a, a bike town pass, and some other things uh, into an affordable package. So that's an initiative that we have, for example. Say that again. That's called it's the... the transportation wallet. And do you sell that to consumers or to businesses that they get on behalf of their employees? It, employees in the in this in the Northwest Parking District can purchase this and it's um, subsidized by parking revenue in that district. And will that program be extended to other areas of the city as well? Is it a pilot program? So it's a pilot program in Northwest. And yes, yeah, so it would be possible to potentially expand that in other areas. And what we're looking at now is we're taking the pilot program in Northwest and thinking about extending it to other neighborhoods and business districts in the city. What's the incentive for, for businesses to participate in things like that or to get transit passes or have bike facilities? Is it in the, the way that you used to have executive parking spaces, for example, is that a, a perk that they can use to attract employees? We're seeing a huge influx of people here in Portland. We're growing. Um, a lot of businesses are thriving. We have sort of a thriving tech sector. What we're finding, at least anecdotally, is a lot of the younger folks who are coming here are attracted to Portland's reputation as a multimodal city or as a bike-friendly, ped-friendly city. And so I think for businesses, both to point out that Portland has this very good infrastructure, but then to offer options for their employees to, you know, to bicycle, whether it's bicycle parking on site, I think it's a growth idea for businesses. And then if I could say one more thing, I of forgot the, our bike corral program, for example, you know, what we that is where we will take a car parking space and convert that. You'll see them, you'll, it's a parking space and it has 12 or so of our blue bike racks. And so we uh, instituted this program. It's been, I think, very successful. We have businesses asking for these things, um, you know, because one parking space, that's one customer, a bike corral with 12 bikes, that's 12 customers. Elliot, I think probably the partnership that people are most familiar with in Portland, because it's the most visible, particularly in the summer months, are Bike Town, the, the bright orange bikes we have around the city. Help us evaluate how that program has gone in terms of ridership and in terms of its financials. Yeah, well, the city set up a pretty good deal for itself on this in that uh, federal dollars paid for the bikes and the infrastructure for that. There's a private company called Motivate that runs the business and takes on a lot of the risk. You know, one big risk was that there wouldn't be enough revenue coming in. And then uh, another private company called Nike agreed to <laughs> sponsor uh, the whole program and they get to put their logo on all the bikes. And of course, they become sort of this mobile billboard. You know, from that perspective, the city has been able to just put money into 
marketing it and trying to increase usage. So from that point of view, they came out with a success out of the gate. Uh, as far as ridership, you know, we have a little less than two years of program to work with. The overall, we're looking at 500,000 rides total, which comes out to uh, a little less than one ride per bike per day. But uh, you get a lot more in the summer. You saw a lot in the first summer when it was operating. You saw uh, fewer um, in the summer months the next year, you know, maybe that new program wore off a little bit. But then in the winter, you saw more riders. You saw people actually riding uh, in months when you might not expect to see as many people on bikes at all. So I think the jury is largely still out. It's clearly grown. Elliot and John, maybe either one of you might know this, but do we know anything about who is riding the bikes and how they're using it? Are they using it to get to the store? Are they commuting to work? Are they tourists? Is there probably some of all of them, but is there a most common usage. Right. It's a good mix. We see a lot of our annual members taking rides. I do want to say that in approaching the 500,000 ride mark, we're actually breaking a little news here on the podcast that we'll soon in the next week or so, we'll reach that 500,000 mark uh, or rider mark. And the metric of about one rider per day per bike that's in the range of when you look at sort of cities that are like Portland, that are good comparisons, Denver and Minneapolis, that's around what they have as well. And I think, Elliot, I want to underscore that that sort of seasonal variation. Um, you know, last January was really, it was an awful January in terms of the weather. This January has been milder and we saw an uptick. Um, we did see kind of a fall off in this past August, which was a little strange. But then when you think about all of the forest fires we had and the really low air quality, we kind of look at that as well. So we're going to have to see over, you know, kind of a multi-year period to see how these trends smooth themselves out. Have those programs been successful long term in some of those other cities you mentioned, or is it too soon to tell? It seems like a, a relatively new initiative. No, I think well, if you look at, you know, uh, Paris, for example, was uh, one of the pioneers in this. Their bike share is you know, still going strong. Um, Washington, D.C., Chicago, New York City, they're still very, they're going well as, as too. So it seems like, yes, this is a, um, a long-term model for urban mobility. So one of the things I observed that first summer especially was that people who worked downtown but who had appointments in other parts of downtown rather than taking their car out of the parking garage, would take one of the bikes. That was a usage that had not occurred to me, but the people I talked to who were doing it felt it was so easy to avoid parking fees, additional traffic, sort of all of that kind of thing. It just made it easier for them. Right. That's a good point. And to go back to your question, Mike, about sort of the typical ride, most of the rides are under a half hour and they tend to be fairly short. So two miles or less. And so that's telling us that, that yes, it's those sorts of rides. And I should also mention, you know, we have a smart bike system, which means that all of the technology, the locking technology and the communication technology and the GPS technology is on the bike. And what that means is that we can get a lot of data from that. And so we're finally ready to start to make that data more public in terms of ride data and origin and destination data and stuff like that. So that's something that people should also be watching out for. We'll, we'll have that soon as well. Excellent. So Roman, I'd like to ask you if uh, initiatives like Vision Zero do increase the demand for the Street Trust programming. So uh, I'm not sure they increase the demand for our programming. I mean, uh, when we reach Vision Zero and streets are safe, uh, there'll be less need for street safety advocates. And frankly, I really hope we get there. 
what is Vision Zero is really the answer to a moral question. Uh, how many preventable deaths uh, are we willing to tolerate as a society on our roads? And the answer is zero. Uh, and so when we get people on board and to commit to that objective, uh, be they uh, local agencies or elected leaders, um, we then have an opportunity um, to hold them accountable and uh, to assist them in uh, you know, delivering their promises. So in that sense, it does help raise awareness and bring the issue forward. Okay, thank you. Could you tell us real quickly about the Bike More Challenge and what are its short and long-term goals? Sure. Uh, so the Bike More Challenge is a really exciting uh, month-long event we host each year to encourage people to uh, get on the saddle and bike more. Um, the way it works is people get together in teams. Usually they uh, are teaming up with coworkers and friends and they tally up all of the miles that they rode during that month. And the teams with the most miles uh, get to earn awesome prizes. So uh, it's just a fun event meant to inspire people to uh, to make bicycling a bigger part of their day-to-day life. For the long-term goal, I mean, it's just bringing life to the bicycling community to inspire more people to um, look into it and experience it, uh, and also bring some community into the mix. Uh, last year was our most successful Bike More Challenge ever. Uh, we had more than 12,000 people uh, participate and they collectively rode more than 1.7 million miles, uh, which is an insane number of miles. Uh, <laughs> and this year's challenge is going to start on May 1st. So uh, check it out. We're really excited. Uh, bikemorechallenge.com. And tell us a bit about the commuter clinics that you offer. So the commuter clinics uh, are fun, short, little informative workshops that uh, we get to host in different workplaces and businesses that request a, a session. Uh, it's essentially a short and formal class where we give people all the info that may be helpful uh, for bicyclists or people who are interested in bicycling. Uh, it includes the basics of bike riding, the local uh, traffic laws, uh, how to take your bike on transit, that sort of thing, uh, and also an opportunity to answer people's questions. So. A lot of times that's in preparation for the Bike More Challenge uh, as people get their teams together, uh, want to get motivated and informed. But also we find that uh, some businesses request them just because they want their employees to uh, be aware of their transportation options and uh, to also be safe on the road uh, when they do decide to uh, ride their bikes to work. What's in it for the businesses that participate? The businesses get a lot of uh, things out of it, uh, essentially. If some of their employees are already bicycling, uh, this is just a way to support their employees' uh, transportation choice. But also in the long term, if more people uh, ride their bikes to work, then uh, you know that frees up some parking space in front of your business. And so that's more foot traffic. That's, uh, as John pointed out, uh, potentially 12 times more customers per parking spot. So, uh, And also it helps contribute to uh, healthier, more active uh, employees who... Uh, you'd imagine would produce better work. Excellent. Well, thanks to all three of you. Now, that's all we've got time for today. So let me add my thanks to all three of you and thanks for coming in. That's John Brady, Communications Director at the Portland Bureau of Transportation, Elliot News, Growth Reporter at the Oregonian, and Roman Bonilla, Communications Director at the Street Trust, an alternative transportation advocacy organization. Biz 503 is produced by Kobe Hutzler with Carl Lucky and edited by Daniel Lin. Biz 503 is a production of Portland Radio Project. A big thank you to PRP's podcast coordinator, Nastasha Voison. 
I'm Mike Rogaway. And I'm Linda Weston. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.